The most important thing that you will do today or any day of your life is to take the Word of God into your hands. Open it, read it, and with His grace, purpose to obey it. I want to invite you to do that just now. Take God's Word in hand, if you would, and turn with me to the New Testament epistle, or the letter of Paul, to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now, as I've said today, with just these two verses of Scripture before us, I'm inviting you to join me on the first steps of what I pray will be a fresh, new spiritual journey. All of us, after all, are on a journey somewhere leading to an ultimate destiny. Some of you may feel like life's journey has turned down some one-way dead-end street. Others of you are standing perhaps at some kind of crossroads and not sure which path to take. Perhaps you find yourself facing some very high hill and wonder if you have enough energy just to put one foot in front of the other. And all of us, no doubt, on one day or another, stumble along the best we can in spite of numberless obstacles and those occasional jarring potholes of life. But dear friends, no matter how rough the road may be at this time in your life, I want to share with you that there are discoveries to be made as we explore this ancient text. 2,000 years ago, our brothers and sisters in Christ, living in Philippi, faced every kind of intense testings and trials, and those trials not so different from our own. And in some ways, at least, living for the Lord was a far more dangerous commitment back then than you and I have probably ever been asked to make. The beloved apostle, known simply to us as Paul, yearns after the hearts and minds of God's people. And he knows how difficult circumstances of life can bring even a Christian into a spirit of discouragement or even despair. So what does he do? He takes his quill in hand, places it upon the parchment, And squinting, no doubt, in the dim light of a prison cell, he tells this trembling congregation in first century Philippi that they need not to live in fear or in paralyzing discouragement. He wants them to know that there is joy in the journey. 
even when the journey is rough. And that there is peace for the day. Peace for each day. Peace today. No matter what any given day may hold. While chained to a Roman guard, he will testify to them that he has learned the secret of contentment in every kind of situation. Beyond that, he will confidently give them every reason to follow his admonition. You'll find it in chapter 4 at verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And again, he says, rejoice. He reminds them that they, like he, can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. And then he holds before them God's promise of a peace that passes all understanding. A peace, he says, that will guard their hearts and keep their minds day by day until Jesus comes again. He lovingly admonishes them to keep the daily discipline of, quote, being anxious for nothing while praying about everything. The believer's great privilege, he reminds them, is to cast all their cares upon him because he cares for us. I've often wondered whether the Apostle Paul had any idea that this letter written so long ago and to one particular group of people would find its way into the Bible's 66 inspired books. For while he wrote to them, we know now that the Holy Spirit's eternal purpose through him was to conserve for us this same wonderful truth. For the Philippian believer and for the believers gathered here this morning, the message endures. And it is this, and it's the banner I place over this whole series as we journey through this epistle. There is joy in the journey. There is peace for each new day. You know, at one point in the letter, Paul lets them know that he intends to send his student and his companion, Timothy, to sort of check them out. He wants to know how the journey is going for them. He knows how great the difficulties are. He says in chapter 2 and verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. What's your condition? What's the condition of the condition that you're in this morning? It's not difficult to imagine what instructions Paul would give to Timothy when he finally got his bags packed. Paul would not be concerned, by the way, to know whether their troubled circumstances had changed for the better or not. No one living for Christ in the first century anticipated an easy time of it. Based on the predominant theme in the epistle, and the epistle he sends ahead of Timothy, I believe it's possible that he asked Timothy to basically check on their condition 
related to just perhaps two things. Number one, when you go, Timothy, check them out. Is the Philippian church characterized by joy in their worship of Christ? Go to Philippi and find out if the church there has joy. Secondly, he would have Timothy examine and ask the question, do they have the peace of God ruling in their hearts and minds on a day-to-day basis? If someone like Timothy showed up here today, the questions, I think, would be the same. Where is your joy And do you have peace? These two things, joy and peace, are two of the believer's greatest blessings. It comes with salvation. So great is this blessing that they cannot be fully described or completely understood. Did you know that? Joy and peace is something that the Bible tells us cannot be fully described or completely understood, but it is very real in the life of a true Christian. When it comes to biblical joy, we are told that while we have never seen Christ with our own eyes, we still, by his Holy Spirit, love him. And that while we do not yet see him, we have a, quote, joy unspeakable. Or another way of saying it is inexpressible joy, full of glory. And as an old gospel song picks up on that theme and says, and the half has never yet been told. It's a joy that is unspeakable, inexpressible. One can't find words to adequately describe it to someone that doesn't have it. The same is true in a certain way. When it comes to peace, Paul says to this Philippian congregation in chapter 4, verse 7, listen closely, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a peace which the one who has it can't even fully understand it. Are you with me? A joy that we can adequately describe to someone who doesn't have it. And we have a peace that even we cannot fully understand. And if this is true of our lives, then my, this should bring some healthy curiosity. Wouldn't you think to our unsaved family members and friends? Where we're trying to witness what it means to belong to Christ. We find ourselves saying something like, I want you to know that I have this joy. I can't explain it, but I have it deep down in my heart. And I also have this this peace. I, I know you can't understand that, and you know what? I can't understand it either, but I have it. Joy and peace. And so this journey in Philippians begins for us. What are we seeking? We seek from the Lord a joy 
we can't really describe, and a peace we can't fully understand, but we can know with certainty through Paul that this is God's will and good pleasure to grant us joy in the journey, peace for the day. Well, let's ask him to help us take these first steps. Father, by your Holy Spirit and this inspired word, we ask you to open our spiritual eyes to behold wonderful things from the heart of Paul to the Philippian church. Make this a living letter to our own hearts from you. We ask this in the life-giving name of our Lord Jesus the Christ and our Savior. Amen. By the way, before I go any further, may I encourage you to make this epistle part of your daily devotional meditation. Perhaps uh, you would sit down at least one time in the course of each week for as long as we are studying this epistle and read the letter, if you will, in one sitting. It's only four chapters. I encourage you to do that. You'll, you'll see things all at once through a full reading, one time all the way through. And I encourage you to maybe set a goal today of doing that at least once a week during the time that you usually, I hope you set aside time uh, to spend in God's word and before his presence in prayer. So uh, there's your assignment. I want you reading all the way through, perhaps in one sitting, and then reading through again on another occasion during these weeks we are in this epistle together, the book of Philippians. Well, now the story of the Philippian church begins with a lady whose name is Lydia. Her amazing story and the beginnings of a church in Philippi are recorded in some considerable detail back in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, Leave a marker there in Philippians 1 for a while, and I want you to trace with me this little bit of history. And turn back to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. In that Pew Bible, it's page 1096. Page 1096. Or in your own Bible, Acts chapter 16. It is significant to note that Philippi was the first city in which the gospel of Jesus Christ was ever preached on the whole continent of Europe. Where did the spread of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ get its beginning, its start in all of Europe? The answer is in this city of Philippi. And we will see in a moment that the woman, Lydia, has the distinction of being among the first converts there. Even more wonderfully, her own home in Philippi becomes the site of the first church in Philippi. The gospel is first preached in Europe at Philippi. There is one particular lady among many. Her name is Lydia, and she comes to Christ. And the church first begins in her home. At this time in history, 
Philippi is part of the expanding Roman Empire. You can look it up on the map. That's helpful sometimes, too, to keep a good perspective of what we're talking about. Understand that a generation of time before the Apostle Paul comes to this city, there was fought in Philippi a decisive battle when Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated Brutus Brutus and Cassius. We all know the Shakespearean phrase, don't we? Et tu, Brutus? You remember that? It has its origins in real history at a real battle in this real city. But for us, as I said, the fame of Philippi is in its church history. Again, the first church in Europe meeting in Lydia's living room. I think this is just one of the best uh, conversion stories ever, and there are many in the New Testament, but this is an exciting one. It begins with the extraordinary leading of the Holy Spirit, which brings Paul to Philippi in the first place. You have to understand, it was not Paul's itinerary. It was not his plan. It was not even his idea. But it is God's will that makes these things come to pass. Let's start to read the story right there in Acts 16, beginning at verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man, Timothy, to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been, look at this, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Paul's plan for this journey was to take the gospel to Asia. God's will said, not yet, I want you to go to Europe. After they came to Mysia, verse 7, they were trying to go into Bithynia and The spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. And now what is the next thing we read? Verse 12. And from there, there's finally going to be a stop on this journey, from there to Philippi. And then Luke includes this description of the city. He says, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. Continues to say, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city 
for some days. It turns out, by the way, that it's not necessarily for some weeks, certainly not some months. The stay is relatively short, but in Luke's recording of the birth and expansion of the church in chapter 16, he seems particularly excited about this city of Philippi. In fact, uh, an interesting note here, if I could just digress for a moment. There are some commentators who've indicated that in the Greek language with which Luke writes the phrase, a leading city of the district of Macedonia, there seems to be, they say, a particularly keen interest on the part of Luke. It's as though he's saying Philippi, with great pride, a place to be. In fact, while the stay at Philippi is relatively brief, as I've already mentioned, Luke dedicates no less than 30 verses to the events there. Now, curiously, it is also the case that Philippi boasted of a famous school of medicine with graduates thrust throughout the then known world. And while there is some conjecture here, it is a note of interest. It is entirely possible that Dr. Luke, you remember the apostle who is a physician, may regard Philippi to be the place of his alma mater, or at least a place where he attended, no doubt, a number of important medical conventions. At any rate, with joy and with a certain degree of pride, he writes about Philippi. Verse 13 And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And now, as is the case with God's sovereign grace, beloved, out of the women, you notice he says we were speaking to the women who had assembled there, the plural group of them. The very next verse speaks of a particular woman, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. She was listening to the gospel message preached by Paul and Timothy. And what do we discover? The Lord opened her Heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Every sinner before Lydia, every sinner since Lydia that has heard the gospel message and actually embraced its truth and has believed in Christ has come the same way. It is God by his grace that opens the heart to believe the things that have been preached, the gospel itself. Look at verse 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she, Lydia, urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And like the woman that she is, note it says she prevailed upon us, and so they went. Well, we've read quite an account. Paul had a plan, and God overruled, and he had frustrating stops, no doubt, along the way. It was God's purpose to bring him 
to Philippi. To go out on a particular Sabbath day and preach the gospel to a group of women among whom there was one that God's heart or God had touched the heart of. This is one of the lessons I want you to have from today's sermon, even as we're just beginning. And it is this. A Christian's response to the call of the Lord is never a trivial or a small thing. A Christian's response to the call of the Lord is never a trivial thing. Great issues and untold blessings may depend on your response and my response to every kind of circumstance and place where we may be found in any given day. It's exactly what's happened here. This is a very significant chapter in the whole book of Acts. And it's all because God was leading, even through the frustrating stops and starts of Paul, in order to bring to pass the great things that we continue to read in this chapter. You see that? Paul had his own plans, and they were frustrated. Sometimes, we read in other places, he was stopped by the devil and hindered. At other times, it was the Lord who prevented his steps. But in all of it, the sovereign God is overruling. He brought Paul to this Lydia in Philippi. Lydia, as we've just read, was a first century businesswoman. She had brought the knowledge she had gained in Thyatira, her hometown, the city known for its purple dye technology of the day. What does she do? She moves to Philippi. And she opens a purple cloth outlet store, if you will. But what does she gain? It's God who gives her eternal life and even a church that meets in her own living room. Again, I pause to say, you and I cannot begin to know what God is up to right now in each of our lives that's going to lead to an outcome of great blessing. Follow always and do never resist the clear leading of the Lord. If you're a child of God, you may wonder about where you are right now, what you're doing, but I want to remind you, God's fingerprints are all over the details of your life. And may I say, he is especially working in those circumstances over which you have no control. Can I say that again? God is especially working in those circumstances of your life over which you have no control because he is Lord and he is in control. We won't take the time here to consider all the details of Acts 16, but the next thing we encounter is the casting out of a demon in this city. It's the fortune teller story. I'll just read two verses, uh, verse 17 and 18. Following after Paul and us, this fortune teller, kept crying out saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now how's that for a lot of good free advertising? But the problem is, even though she speaks truth, she never shuts up. Verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, 
the Spirit in her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. Well, Paul stopped all the noise, but as a result, if you were to read on, gets himself and Silas uh, thrown into prison. Another bad set of circumstances, right? All they were doing was holding prayer meetings and preaching the gospel, and they end up in jail. Bad break. Nothing to rejoice in here, is there? But God. You see, God knows a certain jailer, and God wants to save his soul. In fact, he wants to save this prison guard's whole family. He wants to get them into Lydia's church. The gospel has to come to prison. So Paul gets arrested. You read the rest of the story there, beginning at about uh, verse 22 and following. They end up again at the very end. In Lydia's house, having a praise and prayer hour. Verse 40, the end of the chapter. And after a time of great encouragement, Paul moves on, ultimately, or next, to Thessalonica. The work of God makes unmistakable progress, even in a jail. Because God is leading this way on the journey. Now, those precious folks in Philippi, even though Paul leaves after only a few days, he will never forget. They are in his heart. He knows that the church, like elsewhere, has now grown and multiplied, but so have their troubles and hard times. And so he purposes to write a letter. He longs to know how they are doing. He wants to tell them that Timothy will be on his way, maybe even Paul himself. But he wants them to know that the joy they had in the beginning, the peace they experienced in their prayer meetings way back when, is a joy and a peace he wants them to know each and every day. And so the letter begins. Come back now to those couple of verses quickly to Philippians 1. There's a little more gold to mine, and then we'll continue our journey in Philippians next week, Lord willing. But just these few notes. Notice in the first century style of writing, first of all, you don't have to look at the return address on the envelope or the last page of the letter to know who it's from. Right up front, how does it begin? Paul and Timothy. Now understand that Paul's doing the writing. There are lots of personal pronouns as the passage continues throughout the letter. But he will include intentionally the name of his co-laborer, Timothy. Timothy, after all, was a vital part of that original mission team. It's also, I believe, Paul's way to underscore the biblical principle that God's work is almost always done in partnership with others. God's work takes team work. It's still the case in our day. Now, Paul may be the greater known. He has the public persona. He's on the platform, if you will. But how often Paul wisely mentions 
name upon name, multiple peoples who he knew were indispensable to the work of the Lord. So let me say to you, by way of application, every Christian has a vital role to play in what God is doing. Every believer has been given a gift and has a responsibility to help carry the burden of the work of the Lord. It's those, by the way, fully engaged in such work that have that joy in the journey and the peace that comes in the midst of doing what needs to be done. Now note also another key to this joy and peace business in the Christian life. It has to do with one's self-view, or at least a heart attitude in serving. What does Paul write? He writes, Paul and Timothy, not one above the other, but both, and then says, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Like the lowliest of household servants in charge of foot washing, it is Christ Jesus they serve. In another place, Paul speaks to those for whom he has suffered in the cause of their spiritual warfare. And here's what he says. We are your servants for Jesus' sake. Now what that says to me is very practical. You see, when someone forgets to say thank you for what you've done, understand you'll get your thank you from the Lord himself. If indeed you have met the needs of others for his sake. Bond servants of Jesus Christ. Then he says to all the saints. He is not talking about all the really committed members at Philippi. He's talking about all the believers. In fact, anywhere in the New Testament, when you see the word saints, it's talking about every born-again Christian. He's talking about all the believers, even the stinkers, the wayward, the immature, and the carnal ones. Understand, the Bible does not teach that you have to do a miracle or two and be dead for a hundred years before you achieve sainthood. The Bible says in Christ, we are all saints now. It is our standing by faith in his righteousness that we enter into instant sainthood as the called out ones, the holy ones, as distinct from the rest of a profane and unbelieving humanity. The word saints means all believers in Christ Jesus, and it's by him that they have that title and that standing. If you are not one of the saints today, think of this. Maybe you didn't know this before you came to church here today. Sainthood can be yours before you leave this building. Put your faith and your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and leave this place as a saint You have to earn your halo, however, which will take the rest of your Christian life. Paul includes, you'll note, the overseers and the deacons. That word overseers in the Greek, the episkopos. Why, we know the Episcopalians get their name from that. It's synonymous with the word presbyteros, which the Presbyterians borrow for their name. In our particular church tradition, we would call them the elders, Paul includes the elders and the deacons. He is recognizing that God has appointed leadership in the church. 
not as a special class of saints, but as those who nevertheless are to be respected and submitted to as those who under Christ are responsible for the care of the flock. And then if there is to be joy in the journey, he says, there will be the need for daily grace and peace from the only source from which it flows. That's your second verse there. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of the grace and the peace that you and I truly desire and need. When we come to Philippians 3, we will read in verses 8 and 9 a rather concise summary of how to possess in daily experience this life of joy and peace. And if this is not your present goal, or you've wandered away from your first love, or you've never really trusted in Christ, then the thing to do today is to plead for the grace of God so that you and I together can say with Paul, Philippians 3, 8, and 9, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This then, beloved, is the first of steps for finding joy in the journey and peace for the day. It's in a person. You need to come to know Christ. For many here, perhaps this morning, you need to return to your first love. Where there is any lack of joy and day-to-day peace in your journey, regardless of circumstance, it is directly related to where you stand today in your relationship to Jesus Christ and his Father through him. Or as the hymn says, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised what? Perfect peace and rest. This will be our pursuit in the weeks of our study together.